Monday to Friday, Friday. 9 a.m. till 12 p.m. This is Today with Kino Kamis on Cape Talk. And a very good morning to you. It is 23 minutes to 10, and we are joined by the amazing Dr. 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 Chris Smith, the naked scientist. He'll be answering all your questions, so things about everyday life and you sort of wondering, hmm, I wonder how that works. Why does that happen? Chris can answer it for you. Is it uh, our accuracy rate, Chris? Is it 99.999 or have I missed out a nine? Good morning. Oh, I don't know. We're doing quite well, though. We're getting fewer complaints. So. We're down down from 15 complaints so. per program to 14 <laughs> now, so... <laughs> we, we never have we don't we don't get people complaining do we on the whole pe- people are no, pretty happy with the really. service we provide so that's a kind you of loved, that's encouraging sir. yeah you are loved and included you know your your brain is loved and yeah no no problem with that let's go to bridget bridget's called right up front the naked scientist by the way if you want to call in those numbers to dial 021 446 0567 whatsapp 072 567 1567 bridget in, in greenpoint good morning Morning, Kino. Hello. Chris can hear you. Go for it. Chris, I have a little um, stepson in Australia who has been diagnosed with a syndrome called Rasmussen's encephalitis. Apparently, it's quite rare and it commenced with um, with uh, seizures, which were initially diagnosed as, as um, epilepsy and he was treated as such. However, it's been now diagnosed and confirmed as the syndrome called Rasmussen's encephalitis. The seizures have become worse. They become more often and they last for longer. And apparently, the only um, there's no cure. It's not a fatal thing. And the only way to stop them is to cut out half his brain in something that's called a hemispherectomy. Hemisphere, hemispherectomy. Because if they leave it, um, it will destroy half his brain. And if they don't do this operation, it will proceed to the other half of his brain. Um, Have you heard of it? And do you agree with this, that this is the only way to stop it proceeding to the other half of his brain? Hello, Bridget. Uh, Lovely to talk to you. And uh, thank you for telling us about this. This is really rare. And it's something that in the back of my mind, I remember... It's one of those things that you read up before your medical exams because someone might throw a gobby medical student a question about this and you think it's always good to be prepared. I don't know a huge amount about this uh, topic and so I, I would uh, be very, very cautious about making any kind of pronouncement. Your analysis is quite correct. It's an inflammatory condition of the brain. You get the immune system moving in and damaging nerve cells which then become atrophied or damaged and they become a focus for epileptic seizures because damaged nerve cells misbehave and they start firing off uh, nerve impulses when they shouldn't and this is what causes the seizures. It's not unknown for people to treat really profound epilepsy which is life-changing epilepsy where people have so many seizures and such deep seizures that are really hard to get them out of by removing the part of the brain that's the trouble spot because there's only so much you can do with drugs and sometimes quality of life can become so poor that by using surgery rather than medicines you can achieve a much better outcome and if you do these sorts of procedures very early in life although it sounds really dramatic in fact, the outcomes can be quite good and children have such an amazing ability to be plastic. In other words, their brain can adapt and rewire and compensate for sometimes the removal of extremely large parts of the brain that in fact they make a very good recovery. So it's, it's not a given that um, if you do these sorts of surgeries that you'll get the same outcome you would if you did it in an adult. 
But beyond that, I couldn't possibly comment because I don't know enough about the case and I don't know enough about the disease. It's it's pretty rare. Okay, well. Yeah. So he is 10, and I believe that's at the high point of the spectrum. Um, he only got it at age 9. Wow. And apparently he, he's regarded already quite old for it. So the surgeons have told the mother that he could be paralyzed down the one side. He could lose sight and hearing in the one side. Yep. And so that's pretty drastic. And they also don't know um, mentally what could happen to him. So she's looking at this healthy, normal, well-put-together little boy and thinking that if she puts him under, knife, under the knife, his life is going to change drastically. Yes, so that's... she's thinking, does she, does she take the chance mm. and let it just run its course? Or does she put him yeah. under the Bridget, knife? I think we also need to be fair to Chris. Um, <laughs> and, and I'm going to come in here because, yes, um, you know, for Chris, know. For, for Chris to give an, an answer yeah. like that, which could be life-changing, um, yeah, I, I think it's... And, I and know. you know, and I, I love goes out to the family. Hey, I'm a father, and Chris is mm. a dad as well. It's not easy having to deal with yeah, something like got this. It. All right. Got it, got it, got it. Right. Okay, All thank right. you, Chris. Good Bridget, luck, Bridget. Let's go to Jay in Caledon. Hi, Jay, how are you doing? How's Caledon this morning, morning. by the way? Good, good, very nice. Wonderful. Overcast, but lovely, absolutely lovely. Good. Um, my question for Chris is I've got a friend who's in the clothing manufacturing thing. I'm trying to find out with this COVID virus thing, if they get some stuff delivered that they have to put um, logos on and what have you, I hear that the virus lasts at the most for 72 hours or whatever. If they get a delivery and leave it somewhere for 72 hours, T-shirts that are in plastic packets or whatever, and leave it for 72 hours or even more, is there still a chance of getting this virus or do they still need to sterilise, sanitise everything? Hi, Jay. The answer is you can never say never in medicine. And when they do these sorts of studies, the way they did those surface dwell time studies, which is what they're called, which is where you put a known amount of virus on a surface of a known type and then you wait a known amount of time, come back, swab the surface and you see if you can recover viable virus by transferring the infection to some cultured cells. Those sorts of experiments are pretty artificial, but they do give us an indication of how long viruses can survive on different surfaces. And that's really useful because some viruses we've discovered survive for a really long time. And so you know that your average cleaning or cleansing regime isn't going to cut it. Other viruses we, we now know are pretty fragile and they'll disappear quite naturally quite quickly. Coronaviruses are reasonably stable, but not brilliantly so. So they will not not persist on a surface beyond about three days now the you've got to you've got to think of all of the the kind of likelihoods here the likelihood that someone was sufficiently infectious when they packaged up the material in the first place to put appreciable amounts of virus into the material to put appreciable amounts of virus onto the packaging and then to dispatch that to you and for it to survive that that transit and then enough virus to come out of that to to in with a reasonable proportion of the time infect another person these are all low likelihoods and so therefore uh, going through a whole cleansing regime is probably overkill here and probably not necessary if you're if you're just taking the normal precautions that you would be taking at the moment in South Africa where you'd be washing hands you'd be wearing a mask and you'd be practicing social distancing where you can you're you're already minimizing your risk from all kinds of things including this so i think the risk from this is extremely low and i i wouldn't uh, i would i would think to myself how likely am I to catch this from another person I encounter at work, mm. on the way to work, or at home, compared with yep. what's the likelihood of picking up an infectious dose from a consignment of packaged up clothing? 
the likelihood is much greater in the former than the latter case. And therefore, probably the intervention you make is going to be going to make a very small difference to a small risk when you intervene with the clothing compared to what you're already encountering, which is uh, much bigger in comparison. So I, I, if I were you, I would I would use the, the common sense approach, which is to say the likelihood here is very low. I'm not going to go above and beyond further. I'm just going to process the clothing. Thank you so much for that question, Jay and Caledon. We move on to Seapoint. We'll be joined by Hillary. Hi there, Hillary. Good morning. Good morning, Kino and Dr. Smith. Hello. I have a question about COVID-19. Are certain blood groups more susceptible to contracting COVID-19 than others? Yes. And uh, this is not just COVID-19 that this happens with. There seems to be a relationship between blood group and other infections too. And we don't know exactly why, but this initially was found in patients in China and then subsequently confirmed in other patients in other countries as well. Patients who are blood group A are turning up with severe coronavirus infection symptoms more often than the prevalence of that particular blood type in the population would predict and conversely patients with blood group O are tending to get severe infections more infrequently than you would expect. So in other words when you look at the general population how many people have these different blood groups you would expect by chance if everything was equal the same proportion of people to be in intensive care with severe coronavirus infections with those blood groups. You don't and you find an excess of group A people and a slight inc- uh, decrease in group O people. Why that happens, though, we don't know. Okay. Hillary, thanks Thank for the question. Much. Have Thank a wonderful you. weekend. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks, hey. That's Hillary in Seapoint. Let's go to Fiona. Fiona in Tambuscliff, otherwise known as Tambuscliff. Hi there. Yeah. Hi. Hi, Kino. Hi, um, Dr. Smith. Um, yeah, Cape Town has got a high, high incidence of, of COVID-19. Sorry to ask you another question. But um, the people up to the north in our country, a lot of them are in malaria areas or take, have taken ma- malaria prophylaxis. Um, is there a chance that having been exposed to malaria, uh, having taken malaria prophylaxis, could have some kind of or give some kind of immunity? Is there a reason? What, I'm trying to find a reason, you know, why Cape Town's getting this huge um, number of, of uh, you know, we're kind of being told that we're the epicenter and there's something wrong with us almost. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, hi, Fiona. Uh, the answer is one has to be very cautious about drawing comparisons one area to another because uh, in the same way as we're urging people to be cautious about comparing one country with another because in every country you've got different population makeup, you've got different demographics, different social circumstances, different living conditions, different population densities. So it's really important not to draw spurious comparisons but sometimes there can be uh, interesting trends that emerge from this kind of thing. Now you mentioned people up north uh, having a lower risk of, of this because they might be taking anti-malarials but also if you've got a lower population density in those areas and it hasn't kicked off in those areas very much yet that could be uh, the reason rather than the anti-malarials. But one anti-malarial that has attracted some attention is hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine both of which are used for um, amongst other things malaria but they're, they're finding new uses for, for other conditions including SLE, lupus at the moment moment the this all sort of kicked off in china when people began to try these drugs in people who had severe coronavirus infections and they suggested there might be a beneficial effect this is now being subject to a proper clinical trial including one trial in oxford uh, run by the university of oxford they are putting patients who have coronavirus disease on hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine to see if they can demonstrate a therapeutic effect 
It doesn't look like it's going to be massive, though, if there is one. So it might be that it slightly biases the, the, the equation, but we don't think the effect is very dramatic. So it might well be there's something else going on. What, what else could be going on? Well, perhaps it's, it's a population density issue. Perhaps it's pe- the way people are living. Perhaps it's the way they're working. Perhaps more, more opportunities have been afforded to the virus in some settings than others, which has facilitated an initial increase in the numbers of cases. And actually, it's just that other parts, other geographies are a little bit slower to catch up. It could be the weather, because we know that if you've got colder weather in some places and warmer weather in other places, that can make a difference because of the proportion of time people spend indoors, working indoors, windows closed. It could be the buildings people are working in. We know they facilitate spread. So all these factors are now beginning to to be appraised and assessed because when ultimately we come out of all of this, we may have to think very dramatically about how we and very radically redesign how our buildings work and how we get to work to minimise the spread of viruses because it's obvious that the environment we've created at the moment is quite good at spreading infection among us. And that's going to roll out new businesses. You know, with every crisis, um, you get these sort of things rolling out. Let's go to Anthea in Somerset West. Hi, Anthea. Good morning. Hi there. Good morning. Um, I would like to know about heart. What At what percentage does the normal healthy heart function? First question. Second question. It was discovered a couple of years ago that I had a virus um, attacking my heart on the left side that severely damaged and it uh, functioned at 17%, and then after six months medication, 19%. Now it's functioning at 30%. Uh, and my heart specialist said he will be very happy if he gets it to function at 30%. Now, is there ever a chance that my heart could function um, uh, at full capacity? Hi, hi, Anthea. Yeah, okay. Um, just before I answer your question, if I may, just ha- ask one thing, Kino, which is if there's anyone listening yes. to this who happens mm. to know someone who's working in hospital and would like to help us with a research project. Uh, we heard from uh, someone earlier talking about Australia. Well, I've got a, a research project we're setting up in Australia where we're actually yes. testing blood samples to see if we can find markers that predict people getting severe or less severe coronavirus disease. And we need a whole range of populations to help with this because otherwise we're going to end up with a whole whole bunch of white Englishmen and a whole bunch of white Australians. If we can get some other populations in there as well, because obviously it is emerging that people who are not white might have a higher risk from this disease. I would really like to include some of those in the study. So if anyone is interested who's listening and knows someone who is in a university setting or happens to have access to samples that they would like to share with us that we can perhaps look for some of these predictive markers. We're we're aiming in the long run to have a blood test that we could do or similar very quickly so we can tell who is at risk of getting severe disease so we can intervene sooner in those people. Do please drop me a line to to chris at thenakedscientist.com Love to hear from you. Now, sorry, Anthea, to hijack your question. You're asking about, you know, what, what is the normal functioning of the heart? What I think is being referred to here is what we call the ejection fraction. When you have a heart which is filling with blood, effectively it's a bag of blood, and the heart muscle squeezes from the bottom upwards to push the blood out of the heart and into the blood vessels. And the percentage of the, of the blood that is leaving the heart as a proportion of how much was there to start with is the ejection fraction. So in other words, if the heart ejected all of the blood that was in it, the ejection fraction would be 100%. If it ejected half, it would be 50%. 
And it sounds like in you, you had something that really compromised the left side of your heart, the main chamber that pushes blood around the body, and that's why it was low to start with. And you say that there was some kind of viral infection. It sounds like that might have caused a viral myocarditis. Myo meaning muscle, carditis, inflammation of the heart muscle. And we do see this from time to time. There are certain viruses that trigger this to happen. They can cause a sort of shock to the heart, it's almost like it goes into a state of of apathy and doesn't work very well for a while. And then as the inflammation caused by the virus or whatever it was goes away and the uh, heart compensates, other bits of the heart that weren't damaged or have the ability to take over improve their function and so you re-optimise and it sounds to me like uh, you've you've doubled the ejection fraction on your heart which means the the amount of uh, symptom that you'll be getting will have improved whether it's going to going to go much beyond that uh, obviously your cardiologists would would be able to tell you but that's what those numbers mean and okay. thank you very much for that chris just a quick one i've been having a bit of a discussion around people saying yeah oh, look what sweden's done you know sweden said that we're not going to close things down we're not going to lock down um, and now you look at Sweden's numbers, and they've got a more than 10%, 11 or 12% fatality rate. Um, have you looked into how Sweden's dealt with COVID-19 at all? Mm. Well, uh, people in the initial phase were saying, so you've destroyed the economy and we didn't have to look at what Sweden are doing. But that's why I was saying we have to be really cautious about um, mm. being horses for courses here. Different countries have a very different makeup. Sweden, exactly. compared with, say, the UK, has a very small population. In a, a country that's quite an extensive area, you've got just 10 million people. Compared with, if you take the UK, there are 65 million people packed into that and the London underground system, just tube trains running under London, moves in the average working day, or did, a third of the population of Sweden under London in a day. So you can immediately mm. see that the dynamics of an infection there are going to be quite different, and the spread. Yeah. So what would have worked for them wouldn't have worked for an, another country anyway. That's, that wouldn't have been a valid comparison. But sure. to the, the guy who is advising or has been advising Sweden on how to go about their control measures actually went on the record and said recently well all that doing a lockdown does is kick the can down the road effectively all you're doing is putting off the inevitable and um, basically you you suppress the virus down for a while but all the people remain susceptible so those people who are going to become severely unwell are still going to catch it later and and become severely unwell later so the point I think that's being made is perhaps Sweden are just front loading the equation with in some circumstances maybe Britain are front loading their equation and the mortality overall at the end of all of this will end up balancing out across all countries to be about the same Mm. and that's why all governments are urging people don't look at the death statistics for right now because they're not being recorded consistently look at what we call the excess mortality which uh, Mm. actually is much better processed much better documented and is a much more valid comparison the downside of that is you have to wait for all of this to play through before you can look back and then see if that was the right call that you made to make all right. Now, Chris, we have a quick one from John in Weinberg. John? Good morning, Doctor. How would one sanitize groceries coming in, specifically meat, eggs, and maybe a, a bunch of celery? Hi, John. Well, the celery, you can wash that off and uh, rinse that under the tap. That will be absolutely fine. Presumably, you're going to cook the meat and probably you're going to cook the eggs unless you're into eggnog or something. And uh, it's probably the wrong time of year for that, isn't it? So therefore, the answer is when you bring your groceries in, unpack them, 
put the things away, wash your hands afterwards, that deals with that problem. When you've cooked them, cooking will totally deactivate this virus. Once you raise the temperature beyond 60 degrees or so, that's 60 degrees C, which is, which is far lower than the average cooking temperature for any of these food products, then you're going to deactivate virus and kill it. And as I say, wash the celery off, you'll be fine. Okay, wonderful. Thank you for that. And Chris, thank you very much. Uh, time for us to wrap the show right now, but that's been wonderful as always. Have a good week, uh, weekend. And what we'll do next week is we'll do an extra throw out of that request that you've made. But maybe Thank you for that. That would be great. Uh, yeah. No problem.